Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be almost a false read like a Band-Aid you put on your arm. Touchdown! Alabama wins! Jack Nicklaus wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship. At the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters. This is the Victory Over Injury podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here's Dr. Michael Ryan. Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, athletic trainers, therapists, coaches, and fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is a podcast for athletes, competitors, athletic trainers, therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, athletic trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, passionate fan, or occasional observer, we hope to bring you into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury. Today's guest is an extremely accomplished athlete, coach, and entrepreneur whose success could easily have been derailed early in life. Yet, she possesses a unique internal force that has allowed her to quiet and overcome a chronic struggle that continues to affect daily life. By refusing to succumb to an atypical affliction and actively choosing to respond with grit, will, optimism, and purpose, our guest was named Prep Volleyball High School Junior of the Year and elected to the San Diego Athletic Hall of Fame in 2005. She was a four-year scholarship athlete on the Stanford University women's volleyball team and was selected All-America First Team in 2009 and 2010 and First Team Academic All-American in 2010. She competed on the U.S. Women's National Volleyball Team from 2011 to 2016, making every roster in 2013 on her way to numerous international medals. She took on coaching in 2016 as an assistant at Stanford and was part of the national championship team that year. She found a Play With a Purpose volleyball clinic, which supports the Ronald McDonald House, and recently launched PATH, Progress Through Athletics, a platform that seeks to position the next generation of athletes for a better world through empathy and empowerment. An incredibly accomplished individual who has and continues to overcome pain and who can shed light on how to persevere against overwhelming odds. It is my pleasure to introduce Cassidy Lickman. Cassidy, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to share your experiences with us. Cassidy, in prepping for this podcast, it was very apparent that you are a Californian through and through, and as such, volleyball is a predominant sport in California and on the West Coast. Tell us a little bit about how you came into volleyball and how that became your passion and your main focus. I have an older brother who played, and so I've been in the gym since I was born, basically. I actually was was born in San Diego and we moved to Texas and lived in Houston till I was seven. And my mom ran a volleyball club there. And so when my dad had to work or was away, my brother and I got taken to volleyball practice and she basically said, here's a ball, go entertain yourself. And, and I loved it. I loved going to practice. I loved just being off in a corner, trying to figure out what I could do. And we played all kinds of sports growing up. I played little league and swam and played, you know, basketball and softball in middle school and high school. But Volleyball was always my my first love and the thing that I knew I wanted to play as I got older. 
And do you think there was a reason that volleyball kind of called you as opposed to the other sports? Yeah, I think because I was around it from such a young age and I looked up to those girls who were playing. I think that was a big part of it. And then once I actually started playing on teams, even as I was playing other sports, it was just the thing that I always wanted to do. I always wanted to be in the gym getting better at. I love that it's an all-around team sport. There's no way to hide on a volleyball court. The ball's going to find you. And so I love that. And then there's so many sort of different skills that you can work on. So there is never an opportunity to get bored. There's always something new to improve on. That's awesome. And then at what point, I'm somewhat of a volleyball novelist, even though my wife played in college as well, but I grew up in Colorado. Volleyball was not a big part of that. At what point did you start becoming a little bit more competitive where it became more than just a recreational thing? Yeah, I played on my first team when I was 10, but by 14 years old, definitely getting into high school, it's a very competitive thing, especially because of the scholarships available, even increasingly through the years. But when I was a kid too, once you get up into high school, it's, you know, who's on the best team, where's everybody ranked, who's getting seen by college coaches, all that kind of thing. So for sure, by around 14, 15 years old. And you mentioned the idea of scholarships. Obviously, you ended up going on to Stanford. Was that always your you know, primary goal or were there other schools you were looking at or were you just hoping for a scholarship? What was the approach there? Yeah, I knew I wanted to play in college for sure. I knew I wanted to get a scholarship. There, it, The recruiting process for volleyball starts really young. So, you know, when you're freshman in high school, you're already getting looks from college coaches in some cases. And there were people in my year who were committing as sophomores in high school, which is a little bit crazy. There were a bunch of schools I was talking to. It came down the last three that I was really seriously talking to were Stanford, Washington, and Minnesota. And Stanford just ended up being the place that I I couldn't say no to. At Stanford, it's obviously a great education. I, I really wanted that. Staying in California, I think, was a bonus, like not necessary, but a bonus. And once you go to that campus, it's just hard to say no. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. And as far as really, if you look at all this and that was the one of the peaks of your career prior to going to the U S national team, which I want to get into a little bit later, but a lot of this almost never happened. If you go back to when you were, were younger, tell us a little bit about the day you woke up realizing that kind of life had changed a little bit. Yeah, I was nine years old, perfectly normal, athletic little kid. And I genuinely woke up one morning and there was a shooting pain in my shin and I got up and tried to walk on it, hobbled around all day, but it it was more painful as I tried to walk. And so I got a pair of crutches. And at that time, I had no idea life changed. I just thought I was, again, pretty active. I was like, okay, I bumped it or whatever. And that's what the doctors thought too. I went to, you know, see my pediatrician and they thought, okay, probably some kind of hairline fracture, not a big deal. And then we did some x-rays and nothing showed up and they said, still not a big deal. These things don't always show up in x-rays. So we did an MRI and, you know, bone scan and just continue to test and it kept not showing up. And again, I'm nine years old, right? Like in my world, you get hurt, you go to the doctor, they tell you the answer and they give you the, they give you the solution and then it's fixed. And it was a month, two months go by and nobody could answer the question of why this hurts. So I just, I couldn't walk. I was on crutches for this whole period of time, probably four or five months in we had exhausted the resources available in san diego and i went up to actually it was my first time going to stanford i went to stanford hospital my uncle was the head of pediatrics there which is a great connection to have when you have mysterious uh, illnesses and i went there and they diagnosed me with what's now called complex regional pain syndrome at the time it was called rsd reflex synthetic dystrophy and it's probably five months on our crutches and they said there's no cure for this but there are treatments we can try and so again I was like, great, let's do the treatments. 
we started trying treatments. I'm in physical therapy, just trying to keep my leg from atrophying too much because I have not been walking on it at all. And we did meds, we tried a bunch of different different medications, everything from that to like acupuncture, hypnosis, kind of ran the, the entire spectrum without being incredibly invasive and nothing was working. And so probably six, seven months in they're they're like, you, this might be it. You just might not be able to walk ever. And I disagreed because <laughs> how do you comprehend that as a kid that age? Yeah, as at, at any age, but particularly that young. So at that point it was up to me to go, okay, is this just going to be my life or Am I going to go for it and see what happens? Yeah. And that's a big decision as a a nine-year-old, let alone at any age. Once you've gone through all this, do you recall the moment where you decided, we don't have an answer, but I'm just going to ignore it? Do you remember what you were thinking at that time? Yeah. So the initial decision was a little bit on a whim. Again, small child and did not think it through, but I decided I was going to walk on the last day of school. Did not discuss this with my physical therapist. We didn't like progress in the months. It was just like, I think I just said it to my friends. I'm, that's not, I'm going to walk. It's like, like a week before the last day of school. And then as we got closer, I was feeling good about it until the night before when I went, now I have to do it. <laughs> and the moment that sticks out to me is going to bed that night. I got up after and went out to the living room where my parents were. And they're like, are you okay? And I just lost it falling and I was not a super emotional kid like even through this whole process and so they were like what's happening right now and it was just this realization of I have to do this now and not because anybody else is forcing it on me but I was like I need to do this and because there's there is no help coming at this point I need to try and do this but a it's gonna hurt and b you know what if I can't what if they're right because up until the moment that you try you can say oh no like I'm gonna walk again but I hadn't tried yet. So I think it was all of that coming down on me at the same time. And my parents, they always let me make my choices. They were sitting there going, okay, you don't have to do this. You can take your time, whatever. But looking back on it now, I probably wasn't thinking this as a kid, but it didn't feel like I was in that moment making my decision. Like I had made the decision and that was me dealing with that. This is how big this is for me. And I went to bed, got up the next morning, didn't bring my crutches with me in the car on the way to school. And I can remember stepping out of the minivan and putting my foot on the ground for the first time in over half a year. And I did not walk around school that day. It was like a little bit of a hobble. Yeah, the first time I had, I had tried, and it wasn't the end of the crutches. I had to go back to physical therapy and actually like learn the mechanics of walking again and figure out how to yeah. do that. But it was the beginning of the end. And those first steps, what was that like after not putting weight on that leg for seven months? It hurt a lot. Yeah. It was exciting very painful and just, yeah, super, super weak. Like I was an excellent hopper at that point. (laughs) I could hop for probably miles. So I think my right leg took most of the weight for the day. Yeah. I think most of it was, I was excited that I could do it. could put the foot on the ground because it felt like at least it wasn't that clear. This is it. But yeah, not a lot of strength there. With respect to the pain, I think people watching athletes go down with an ACL or at a more severe injury, like an Alex Smith, where you have a fracture of a tibia. That's very obvious. That's a sharp amount of pain. But with this, it's something very different. What does the pain for you feel like? Where is it located? How does it become manifest if you rest versus if you're putting more weight on it? What is it like for you? What do you feel when you were going through that and even now? Um, so it's my left kind of shin area. It's fairly specific. It goes like mid knee down through the middle of my leg, but all kind of in the front. 
there's a few kind of different sensations. So there's a baseline level of pain that's just always there that never goes away. And then it increases for three reasons for any activity that I'm on my feet. So if I'm walking a lot or standing for a long period of time, running, jumping, like running any kind of distance was like the last thing that I was able to do and still not, doesn't feel good. Jumping, I struggle a lot with, I don't do a lot of one leg exercise, like a one leg squat or RDL or something. If it gets hit for any reason, that hurts a lot. And then sometimes just spontaneously, I don't know why it just flares up. So in terms of the actual sensation, on a good day, it's just like sharp, but a little bit achy and I'm fairly used to it now. So I like notice it, but I'm not thinking about it on a bad day, you know, particularly I'm playing a lot. I'm working out a lot. If you think about getting hit in the shin with something hard, a hammer or something, like not the moment that it gets hit, but the ache sort of after there's like still a little bit sharp. And then the other thing is sometimes when I've been on my feet a lot and I get also get tired, it just, it's like, it gets a lot more achy and the image that I have in my head of it is, have you seen a picture of a dead tree, a tree that's got hit by lightning? Yes. What I imagine that would feel like. Yeah. Just deep, almost like in the bone. Yeah. Like just the whole thing. Like it's still from that front, like around the shin area, yeah. but just radiates more through my leg. Got it. And you mentioned, obviously, with seven months on crutches as a kid, that atrophy that kind of developed, losing a lot of the muscle mass. How long did it take before you recovered a lot of that? It was pretty quick, I think. I played, again, I played on my first volleyball team when I was 10. So it was only maybe five months later or something that I was that I started playing, which 1,200 volleyball is not like the most athletic endeavor. Yeah. And I was also a scrawny kid to begin with. So it's not like I had to build up tons of muscle mass yeah. to match my other leg. But yeah, I want to say over... The course of those three to five months, like I was back to decent shape yeah. for a child. That's the benefit, I think, of being young, too. Yeah. Do you think that with that, when you say you're back and you regained a lot of that, in your mind, as you mentioned, you had to relearn the mechanics of walking. Do you think you got back to that pretty quickly and were just able to suppress that pain while you were playing? Yeah, I think I had a high pain tolerance. I'm sure that I compensated. And I know that I compensated because I still find ways where I'm like, man, I thought I was doing that. And... <laughs> Actually, I'm still doing it. So I'm sure it's, it wasn't perfect, but I think I got back pretty quickly to that place where I could move without thinking about it as, as much. Yeah, that's pretty impressive again for a, a nine or 10 year old to just go from seven months of not walking to saying, all right, I'm, I'm gonna push through with this. And like I said, the, the, there were things that were harder than that. Like again, running was harder and running for any day. It wasn't until probably high school that I ran for any kind of distance. Gotcha. And to come back up, you'd mentioned that the working diagnosis, at least at the time, was CPRS or complex regional pain syndrome. I know a little bit about that, but can you describe what that is to some of the listeners who aren't aware of that? So generally it comes in the onset with some kind of injury or a surgery, and then it's a nerve problem. The way they explained it to me as a child was your nerves are just misfiring pain signals. There's no reason that it should hurt. There's just like a bad connection, which I think is still the basis for whatever is going on. That kind of idea of just like the misfiring, but there's generally other kind of symptoms around swelling and redness and that kind of thing. And it affects largely limbs, like hands and feet and, and legs and arms. But yeah, I, I ended up eventually getting undiagnosed, but that's what they hit me with at first. We see that from time to time, but it's incredibly rare, even in the orthopedic world, 
And like mm-hmm. you mentioned, it's generally related to an injury. So one of the most common sort of textbook answers that we see is if you have a wrist fracture, a lot of times afterwards, even if you don't undergo surgery, like you said, the nerves can just start to misfire. And as you mentioned, not only do you get atypical pain that's out of proportion, but you also have these other findings that are like what we call vasomotor. So the blood vessels tend to not contract normally. So you get a lot of redness or swelling and you get skin changes where the skin's a little bit shinier. Did you have any of those symptoms as well? Or was it purely just pain? I just had pain and a little bit, I think I, I don't have like great circulation to begin with. So I think on occasion that may have shown up a little bit, which might have led to that diagnosis. And then I had just like weird temperature feelings sometimes. Like they have you do a lot of tests with CRPS around rub this toothbrush on your light, like the affected areas and non-affected areas. Does it feel cold or not, or room temperature or ice, same thing. And so I had some variability in the temperature that I felt or the texture that I felt, which I think also led them to potentially believe it was CRPS. But eventually that was ruled out. And is there a working diagnosis at the moment or not really? No, (laughs) they tried. When I went to Stanford and, and was in college there, I went back to the doctors, Sean Mackey, who's amazing. And he essentially the first appointment I had was like, you don't have this because I'm missing many of those kind of key symptoms. And there was no initial injury. And so he had thought maybe it was to come in trap nerve or something a little bit more obvious. Um, we did many diagnostic tests and nerve blocks and all kinds of things and just never really were able to find anything concrete. Yeah. And as you mentioned, a lot of times the, the treatment is either medical, you can take certain nerve medication to calm a nerve down, there's nerve blocks. Did any of that work for you or have any effect whatsoever? No. And we went through a lot, a lot of different medications aimed at the legs and the nerve and also in, in the brain, different medications that would affect that. We did a lot of diagnostic nerve blocks, everything from the femoral and the sciatic to I ended up doing a spinal block epidural combo. And that was towards the end because they, they wanted to start local to see, okay, can we pinpoint which nerve it is? And we just kept moving up. And once we got to the spinal block, I was numb from the waist down, but my legs still hurt. Really? And so, yeah. That's very odd. Um, it's very odd. So Dr. Mackey's best guess was that potentially when I was younger, I somehow damaged one of the nerves in my lower leg. It's also confusing because it the pain does not follow like a textbook nerve track. It's not like, oh, here's the perineal nerve. This is where it hurts, which wouldn't be more normal, but it doesn't. So he thinks I somehow damaged, you know, nerve in my leg and it is misfiring those pain signals. And then, you know, potentially my brain over the last 20 years or at that point, 10 years, I had just gotten accustomed to it. And so it defaults to pain. So even if you cut off the signal from my lower body, it's still interpreting pain. So we just got to the point where it was like the options were we can like surgically go into the leg and see if we can figure it out. But they couldn't tell me that wouldn't affect my motor control. And I was getting ready to go play professional volleyball. And the other option was we can dig around the brain, which is never a good thing if you yeah. don't have to do it. Yeah, not a good idea. So yeah, so we just ran out. I'm the, the probably the biggest last thing I did was, have you heard of the ketamine treatment? I have not. No, I, I know ketamine has been used for a variety of different things, but not in relation to something like this. What's yeah. that about? So essentially like an IV of ketamine, the whole course would be two weeks, but it, it wasn't working after four days. So we stopped it. So just six hours a day of just ketamine and to like chemically reset your brain, gotcha. basically. Yeah. I've heard about it in different contexts that similar sort of aspect of maybe related like PTSD or some other sort of psychological yeah. injury where you can use that to reset it. So that's an interesting application, but did not work. No, and it was super weird. Yeah, ke- ketamine will uh, make you see a lot of things. We used to use that in, for some of the sedations for young kids because it's quick mm-hmm. offset, but 
the hallucinations were wild from what you could tell. Interesting. As far as going through all of that, you can imagine that with all the workup you did, all the diagnostic testing and everything being negative, sometimes we as physicians are, are left without an answer. And then the question is, if you can't point to anything, you have nothing objective, is this really occurring? Was there ever a point where you felt like people didn't believe that you were having pain or was that ever an issue for you? When I was a kid and it first started, and I think I was peripherally aware of it. Like I think my, my parents more, like they've told me since then, my pediatrician was a little skeptical. And I know he, he ended up asking them like, are there things going on at home? Like the kind of the ba- the standard questions. I was like a pretty quiet kid, like not an attention seeker. And my parents were like, no, you need to <laughs> take this seriously. Yeah. Beyond that, not as much. Like when I, once I got into you know college, when I went back to the doctors and all of that, they were all very clear in saying, this might be in your brain, but we're not saying it's in your head. There's a distinction. And through that process, as you're learning to cope with this, were there any other people that you saw that you sought some inspiration from in terms of how to deal with something that's chronic that's affecting you every single day? I didn't really. Like it was one of the big things I think growing up was just not, especially within sports. Obviously there are people who, you know, have been injured and come back and there's so many stories about that, but not a lot about this kind of thing, which I get. There's not a lot of people like me in sports, but it was the thing I was definitely aware of the lack of it growing up and going, I don't know anybody else who has done this. And without someone really to look to outside of your standard injuries in sports, it seems that you found a pretty good way to learn how to cope with this on your own. And some of the things that I found reading this through were a couple of things were stuff like win the battle is not the war, throw this idea of impossible away. And then you have the choice in the way that you change. It's a matter of how you respond to it. Can you speak to each one of those and how that came to be and how you learned to use those as your methods to get through all this? Yeah, I think when it comes to winning the battles and not the war, it's been a long war. I was nine, I'm 31 now. So we're at 22 years of this. And like I've people have asked me before, like, how do you, you know, how do you do it for that long? I'm like, you can't deal with this for that long. So sometimes it's, can I just do it for this week? Can I do it for this, this day? Can I do it for the next 30 seconds, particularly in training and stuff? And so when I think about it, like the, the story that comes to mind to me is the I told you I hadn't, I hadn't like run much when I was a kid. And so I got to high school and I'm in varsity my freshman year. And one of the first things we did, coaches do the gut check of something, some kind of conditioning, whatever. And so ours is called the circle of death. And you had to just basically run around the basketball court and do various exercises. And he told us the day before, and I was like, I don't think I can do that. I hadn't run more than maybe five minutes, three minutes, something like that. But he wanted me to try it because, you know, it's a whole team thing. And we got probably 10 minutes into it. And I was like, I, this is bad. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, just do one more minute. And so I did one more minute. I was like, okay, I got to stop. And I said, okay, do one more lap. And so I did one more lap and then I did one more lap. And then I said, okay, just make it to the next corner of the court. And I made the next corner. And then I was like, okay, just take the next step and take one more step. And we got to the whistle blows and it's been probably 23 minutes. Wow. And I made it through and it did not feel good. And I want to say too, as a side note, I know that there are times when you should push your body and there are times that you should not. For me, the, the issue has always been like, it's just on me because it's just pain. I'm not injuring anything further. So it's just literally how much can you take? And so I think it's a good example of, of that notion though, to go, okay, I can do all of that and it, it's still going to hurt. Like I won the day. <laughs> 
but also you have to deal with the consequences of it. So really focusing on, okay, what, what matters to me and what do I want to, what do I want to do? And not worrying about the next week, the next month, next year of this, because it's just too heavy. The second thing I think was the concept of impossible. Yes. So I think that when I talk about this, there's a lot of people who are just like, how do you do that? And I think the first answer to that is because I never assumed that I couldn't. To their credit, my parents didn't either. And so I, I remember when I was still on crutches, we were going to Yosemite for, for vacation in like the kind of winter, spring, it's like snow on the ground still, and I cannot walk. And they said, do you want to go? And I said, yeah. And we're there and they said, we're going to go on this hike up Vernal Falls. It's, it is up a mountain. And I was already I'm a little kid already. And they said, do you want to go on the hike? You don't have to, you know, you can stay back at the lodge and one of us will stay with you. And I said, no, I want to go on the hike. And so we went on the hike on crutches. And when I tell that story, there's a lot of people who are like, why would, why would you? And to me, it's like, why wouldn't I? And I think that just basic assumption that people have where they go, okay, there's a kid on crutches. You shouldn't hike up a mountain. There's a, there's an assumption that you're making there that I didn't make, which was like, I am still capable of going up the mountain. Is it going to be harder? Yeah. But why should I assume I can't do this? And then I obviously could. And so I think that's been a lot of the way my decision-making works is not to go, can I do this? But think, okay, what do I want to do? Am I willing to, am I willing to work for it to make the sacrifices necessary for it? Am I willing to take that much pain? And is it worth it to me even if it doesn't work out? So I think that's been the way I've approached it as I've gone throughout my career. And just as an athlete too, going to Stanford and playing for that program, going to the national team. Is that what I want to do? Yeah. Is it going to work out? I don't know, but let's go for it. But why assume that something's impossible before you try it? And then the third thing is making choices and how it shapes you. Yeah. Yeah. I think this one hit me has hit many times, but the time that I remember most was in college. Just, I think call it like out of everything, national team was hard. Professional was hard, but college just given all of the kind of demands on your time was probably the hardest. I was really pushing it physically. And then I have to get up and go to class and just like the, the weight of that and figuring it out was a lot. And so there was one point where I just, I felt like I was struggling. We had a meeting with my coaches and our training staff and they, they said, okay, do you want to, do you want to take something out? And I had roped off volleyball as like, you, I'm not modifying. I had never missed a practice. I know anything like that. And I think they asked me like the smallest thing. I think I like cut out like conditioning or something, things that were like really on the fringes that were hurting. But it was the one space that I felt like I was maintaining control over. You can take all of these other things from me. There are a million different ways you're going to change, but like you can't have this thing. And so I think in some ways that I just felt like out of control at that point. And I remember going, okay, as I feel myself spiraling a little bit, going, okay, rein it back in and just consider this for a moment. And what I thought about was there are many things I don't control. I do not, I never controlled the fact that this happened to me. I don't control the pain on a daily basis. I don't control how much it hurts and I can't make it stop. So what I do control and what I always have is my response to that. Am I able to take this and make it make me a better athlete to make it make me a better person, you know, a stronger person, whatever it is. How can I respond and make it in as much as I can into a positive for me in my life, which A, gives me something I still have control over, but B, it's just, I think a healthy way to do it, to go, okay, 
I don't need to get bitter and angry. And I've never been angry as my kind of primary emotion around this. Mm -hmm. I've always been primarily grateful. And so I think maintaining that and just the perspective around, okay, I still get to control who I am, even if this is affecting every other kind of part of my life. That's a really unique way to approach things. I think a lot of people in your situation would probably be frustrated and grateful is probably not the first word they would come up with, which I think is very interesting. It reminds me a lot of, and you you may have read the book already as well, but Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, where mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing, but that, that's one of, one of his philosophies is you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to it. And I think yeah. it's a very interesting way and it's almost probably one of the few ways that you can respond to something like this and succeed. And I really liked one of the quotes that I read about you was talking about how you don't have to respond to pain. And it's an interesting way of approaching that. Is that something that took time for you to develop that, that sort of ability to respond that way? I think it took time for sure for me to understand it. I think it was probably a tool I used from the very beginning. Maybe the first way I did it was what I was talking about before, which is, okay, just focus on the, the one lap, the one step. Get your mind on the thing that you want it to be on as opposed to the pain. At that point, like I, I knew when I was younger, there were times when I would do that. And I was like, I know I'm lying to myself. And no, I'm not going to stop after the next lap, but I'm going to say it anyway and make myself believe it. But it wasn't until I got to the national team and was really thinking about, okay, like, how do I do this? How does this work? What are the mechanics of it? That I realized that relationship of going, it can hurt and flare up and, and spike mid-workout. And I can just recognize it. Like the body is primed to, re- to react to pain because it's like evolutionarily helpful to do. So if something hurts, your body is like, okay, you need to tend to that because in the next minute, like a bear might be chasing you and you have to run away. And chronic pain is a mistake. So it doesn't work in that same way. And so I think, and I guess this could go for any emotion, but for pain in general, when it spikes up, I know that my leg is, is functional. I know that it is strong enough to do what I'm asking it to do. So that's not the issue. So in my mind, and I think there's a level at which like pain is just blinding and you just have, it is what it is. But up until that point, to me, when it spikes up, I can just go, okay, that hurts, but I'm busy right now. I need to focus on this other thing. And then it's just a question of, okay, how do I, do I focus on that one more kind of concept or counting reps or my breathing or whatever it is, or if I'm on the court, okay, just like focus on the ball and figure it out, but being able to just recognize it and go, okay, like I see you, but I'm just going to put you over here right now because I have other things to deal with. That's really interesting. A lot of the words you just described in terms of changing focus or recognizing it, you know, putting it away and, and compartmentalizing that idea of pain really speaks a lot to uh, different sort of mindfulness meditations. Have you ever gotten into that or is this just something that you developed a, a way of dealing with this? I didn't until the national team, we had a psychologist, Michael Gervais, who, who spoke to us about it. But growing up, I don't think I ever heard the word mindful until I got to the national team. Um, it's interesting. I don't think I've ever said this to anybody, at least not publicly. I don't think about it before the competition in, in warmups or anything like that. And my body's very well trained at this point. And there are moments when they might flare up during warmups and I have to just adjust on the fly and and figure that out, which is a fascinating just from like how your brain works perspective and how you can sort of Jedi mind trick yourself into doing things. So that's come up before. But the one thing that I do before every match is at the time, usually when the national anthem plays, or there's usually some time where you're just standing, waiting, introductions, whatever. And there's a couple things I do in that moment. One is super quick visualization around like making great plays. One is kind of a moment of 
just recognizing whether it was the national team, whether it was Stanford, this, this pro league, just like the opportunity to play and gratitude for that. And then what I do is the one time in my life that I do this, I focus on the pain, let myself just feel it. And then feel my foot on the ground, feel myself standing there. And for me, it's just this recognition of where I've come from and just the opportunity to stand on a volleyball court and know that I'm going to go out and play regardless of how this feels. So I don't know if it's like gratitude, maybe a little bit of defiance, but it's the only time in my life. Obviously, usually I'm trying to ignore the pain. (laughs) It's the only time in my life when I go, okay, just center everything that you have on that and feel it and then feel how your body still works anyway. So sometimes you get thrown into the swimming pool and you figure out how to swim. (laughs) But I have been told there's a program at Stanford now that didn't exist when I was a kid. It's an inpatient program for kids just like me who develop debilitating chronic pain issues, particularly in their limbs. And as I talked to the people who run that program, the psychologists, they're like, you created the program for yourself. I don't know how, but I think trial and error, it was just like, these are the same techniques that doctors use. It was just what worked for me. That's what I found very interesting because in prepping for this, I I didn't read anywhere that you had mentioned something like that, but all of the things you describe are very similar to a lot of those techniques and and thoughts and, and processes. And so I think it's very interesting that you've essentially done that without even like realizing you're doing it. And you now realize, of course, now that you've gone through it all, but it's just so fascinating to me that you inherently stumbled upon that ability to to do that innately, which is fascinating and impressive. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. Fortunately, I had a chance to talk to your former athletic trainer, Aiton Gelber, who was phenomenal and gave me a lot of insight and was very impressed just as you as a person, plus as an athlete. And he mentioned a little bit about you, and you alluded to this earlier in terms of being able to control things. And volleyball was something you felt you could control. He mentioned a few things you guys really worked on that were not only because you were, had the ability to, but also just helped you work through the, the pain that you're dealing with. He mentioned, you know, monitoring your load, changing positions. Can you speak to some of the things you did as a player to help at least keep some of this at bay to allow you to continue to play at the volume you did throughout college? Yeah, I, I was a little bit of a unique player because I did change positions a lot, which is rare in kind of this specialized sports world. And that was a l- mostly just because I had a unique skill set and that's what they needed me to do. But I do think it helped probably my body in general. There's so many overuse injuries in all sports and, and volleyball is no different. So I think the fact that I changed a lot probably helped and that I was not jumping and swinging for four years straight or setting for four years straight or anything. So. I think that switch up was helpful for me. That being said, because I was playing multiple positions, there was a lot I needed to do in practice. And so there were moments when we had to have those conversations with coaching staff and mostly it was them saying, hey, you can't do more of this. It's generally jumping or let's look at the weight program and go, okay, what of this do you really need? Do you need to do like the heaviest flips or the sled pushes or the cardio or not. And so, you know, working with Hayton and our strength coaches to figure that out. And so I think that was helpful for me. And I was not always appreciative of it in the moment. Anytime Hayton was, you shouldn't do this part. I'd push back a little bit because I want to do everything. In the long run, I think it was helpful. And especially as my career went and we figured out that the balance to get to, it still hurt, but it was helpful. And then the one thing that was actually remarkably helpful for me was my, my senior year, it had gotten pretty bad. And like I said, it was just the being in season. And then also I have to think about, okay, do I walk to class? Do I bike to class? Both of them hurt. How am I going to get around campus? I was literally planning my day around moving less. Okay. I'm going to go to the gym 
two hours early because I don't want to take the three minute bike ride back to my dorm and then to the gym. And so I ended up getting a golf cart, uh, which is what they give injured athletes at Stanford because it's a big campus. I'm probably the only athlete ever to have a golf cart while they were still competing. Usually it's like after an ACL surgery yeah. or a broken foot or something. Uh, but that just lifted a huge load off of my shoulders to go, okay, I can go where I need to go when I need to go there and not worry about the 12 extra steps it takes because that's the calculations that you start to make on a bad day. And I think what was impressive about what Aitan also mentioned in terms of your ability, in terms of a, just a volleyball player that really stood out to him in terms of your, your overall skills, as you mentioned, that versatility to play different positions. But he also mentioned that you uh, can hit right and left. Is that correct? Yeah, not as well with my left hand, but yeah, I can. And I, that was intentional when I was a kid. <laughs> and kind of going back, do you think that part of this allowed you to develop that versatility and that that dexterity on both sides? I think it definitely made me think more about it. I've always been a little bit more dexterous with my left hand than than a lot of people are. Um, like I shoot a basketball left-handed, which is weird. I don't know why. But I think the way it actually affected me most was as a kid, what I was thinking was, what if I get hurt in my right shoulder? I want to be able to play still. So I want to be able to at least swing well enough with my left hand to be on the court. Cause I have other skills I can contribute with, but I want to be able to, you know, hit. And so I would practice, you know, just, you know, as you hit against the wall, I would practice with my left hand too, to get better at it. And again, not as, as strong with it, but functional with my left hand. And I think probably that mindset came from just knowing how quickly your, your body can get taken away from you. So I just wanted to be prepared in case that happened. Yeah, that's interesting. Again, speaks to your experience of waking up one morning and then things are totally different. Yeah. Moving on and, and speaking about your volleyball career, you mentioned one of your favorite matches was in 2008 playing against Texas. Can you tell us about that and why it was one of your favorite matches? Yeah. So my sophomore year, I'm um, the starting setter for Stanford. We played in the final four in Omaha, Nebraska. Ended up that night ended up being the biggest crowd to ever watch a volleyball game in the U.S. It's been surpassed by now, but it was like 17,000 people because Nebraska played right after us in the other semifinal. And we had a great team. Texas had a great team. We both had future Olympians, future national team players. And we lost the first two sets. And for me individually, like we had gone to the national championship match the year before and it basically just graduated our setter in, in a middle. But she was so I was coming in as this new position that I hadn't played as much with probably the least experienced setter in the history of the final four, but we're here in front of, you know, 17,000 fans. We lose the first two sets and we play the third, win the third pretty easily, barely win the fourth. And the moment I really remember was going into the fifth set, just looking around at the team and going, just seeing it in people's eyes, like we're going to take this. And we end up, I think we go, I think we go down 3-0 in the fifth, in the tiebreaker. We tied up 6-6, 9-9, and we win 15-13 to go to the national championship. Wow. And we watched the match afterwards um, on TV, and the announcers are talking about how this has never been done before. Like the whole first, you know, two th sets into the third set, nobody's ever come back in the history of the final four from down 0-2. And we're laughing about it then, of course. But the other part for me was that, it was December when the tournament happens. It was 10 years to the day from the day I woke up and couldn't walk. Really? And I was there starting for a team that was going to the national championship. Wow. What a coincidence. Yeah. And, yeah. and do you remember thinking back about that time, obviously down 2-0 and you're again, as the announcers had said that it's never been done before. 
was there just a attitude in the huddle or was there something about that those teammates or even for you in particular that basically said hey we're not done with this yet do you remember anything like that yeah i don't know if they've changed this but we had a 10 minute break after the second set generally in college volleyball and the thing i remember is going back to the locker room and one of our captains looking around and basically going you know I would take any one of you over any one of them, you know, and like literally went around each person, like I would take you over her. I would take you over her and just giving that confidence. We knew we were good enough. We played them early in the year, we beat them. So yeah, I think we just came out and played a lot better in that third set. And they were a very physical team. We were too, but they were, that was more their style. And we were a good volleyball team. And we had confidence that in the end that was gonna win out. That's awesome. That's a great experience. And did you end up winning the national championship while you were at Stanford? We didn't. We lost twice in the final. I went back and won as a coach a few years ago, but it's not the same thing. Yeah, a little different. It's still an incredible accomplishment to to be able to go through that, let alone winning down two sets. That's amazing. What a great experience. And then, so after college, that's when you transitioned to playing professionally. Is that correct? What's that like? And how is that different from playing from, from a collegiate level? What was your experience like playing professionally? There is just now I'm currently playing in the pro league in the u.s that just started but there has not been professional volleyball in the u.s for decades so we go play overseas generally and then the other opportunity here is is the national team and for me i was actually my senior year i had gotten invited to go train in kind of a winter block when most of the national team players are overseas in their pro leagues they sometimes have training opportunities for like graduating seniors and so i wanted to graduate and finish school but i was able to go to class a couple days a week and then go down to Anaheim and train a couple days a week. And so that was kind of my first exposure to the national team gym. And then I had, I had an agent and got a job in Poland, in the Polish league. So a couple months after I graduated college, I moved to Poland, which is an experience, and played my first pro season there and then ended up coming back. I actually played in my first national team tournament while I came back mid-season and played in the Pan American Games in 2011 in Guadalajara. They had sent like a, a really young team because they had two tournaments at the same time. That was my first kind of tournament for the U.S. And then when I came back from Poland, everyone comes back to the national team at different times. So it was an Olympic year, which normally nobody knew comes into the gym in the Olympic year. But because our season ended earlier than others, I got invited to come. And I think at the time I was setting, like I said, I played in a bunch of different positions. And so what ended up happening was there weren't enough setters back, so I set. And then the setters came back and they said, can you hit on the right side? We don't have any right sides right now. And I said, yeah. And then the right sides came back and they said, can you hit on the outside? And I said, yeah. So I just ended up staying the whole summer because they needed somebody to fill the spots. And I was, you know, good enough to, to be there, which was great because then once the next year came and it was a new quad, I was like a veteran all of a sudden as all these new people are coming in and I had just been around to play and ended up going to a couple tournaments that summer for them. So were you playing simultaneously pro part of the year and then with the U S team, the other part of the year? Yeah, so we generally play late spring, like May till September, maybe October if there's a late tournament with the national team. And then we'll go play the rest of the year in overseas teams. And obviously, if you're at a place like Stanford or any other sort of Division One college, the resources are, are, are pretty good in a lot of ways in terms of the strength and conditioning coaches, the athletic training staff, all the support staff. What was that like for you when you're playing professionally or for the U.S. team? Obviously, that changes when you go to a different position because the, the funding is just different. What was it like for you and how did you continue to deal with the pain that you were experiencing throughout that professional part of your career? The, the national team, their strength staff is great. We had a great strength coach there and, and training staff. 
Overseas, it varies a lot. Some places had a strength coach and a trainer. Some places it was just like the physio in town was the trainer and didn't even come to practice. So I rarely use their resources that much. I would bring my own strength program from the national team strength trainer and, and just do that for the most part. There were teams, I don't think I ever even told my teams for the most part that I had this pain issue. It was just like, I'm going to deal with it. And because coming out of college, I was thinking, okay, you know, obviously it, it helped to have Aton and other people around who knew about it and who we could, I could talk to. But again, like I didn't miss practice and there wasn't a whole lot of modification going on. And I think at the pro level, it's a lot more, I don't know, like in college, I was like, okay, I, have, I need to go hard every day. And in the pro level, particularly when you're going to teams, like you don't know how good the coach is, how well the practices are planned. So it's a lot more, okay, what do I need to do to get better and to perform and to be ready for the national team season? So if there's a practice that I need to go 80%, then I need to do that. And so it was a lot more kind of self-monitoring around what, what do I need to achieve my long-term goals? Yeah. And... With your career abroad, you got to play in a, a bunch of different places. I think it was Poland, Azerbaijan, France, China. What was one of your favorite places to play in? My favorite place to live was France. I was in Cannes, like the French Riviera, which is pretty nice. And the club there, you know, was a family-run place. They were really, really good to us. I liked my teammates. So that was a really good situation. Probably the best kind of overall was China, just in terms of the level of volleyball. They love volleyball there, and they're good. And they pay well, yeah. and it's a short season, which is really nice. That's a pretty ideal um, kind of uh, constellation of uh, criteria there. Yes, yeah, so those are all the things that you want. If I was going to potentially play one more season at the time I retired, and if I was going to, I was like, I'm going back to China. But then I retired. Yeah, and then as you mentioned, you're simultaneously playing in, with the U.S. national team, doing the Pan American Games. What was your most exciting or proudest moment playing for the U.S. national team? During that time? Probably in my last tournament, we, we went to Pan Am Games in Toronto. And I mean, first of all, the Pan Am Games are fun because it's the one tournament we go to that's not just a volleyball tournament. The other sports are there too. It's kind of like a mini version of the Olympics. So it's already great. And then we haven't won the Pan Ams in, in 50 years, I think, since the 60s. Oh, wow. And we, we play against Brazil and Dominican and Cuba, and they've all, they've all had strong teams. And so we played Brazil in early on in the tournament in pool play. And so they're one of the strongest teams in, in the world. And we went up 2-0 against them in the loss in five. And so we played them again in the gold medal match. And we went up 2-0. And then we were down 20-12 to 12 in the third. Not a place you want to be in any against any good international team. But Brazil, there's no way. But I remember the, the timeout around 20 to 12, and I remember us taking it and going, how great is this story gonna be when we pull this off? And we get a couple points and nothing really special happened, but like a couple points here, a couple points there. And all of a sudden it's like 22, 20, and then it's 23 all, and then it's 25 all. And we end up winning, I think 28, 26 to win a wow. gold medal. Wow against Brazil and it was just it's just the just absolute joy of those moments of competition are they're pretty great. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. Especially Brazil. I, I don't know much about volleyball at all, like I mentioned, but I do remember watching Rio games and just hearing how great the Brazilians are and how important volleyball is to them. Yeah. So to come back and win a gold medal against them, that's pretty that's pretty special. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> Um, that's awesome. And then you end up transitioning to coaching for, for a little bit, right? What was the impetus to go back and start coaching? 
Yeah, I wasn't planning on it. I, I figured I would coach in some capacity, but just in my free time. And then I just missed the cut for the Rio Olympics and my college coach called and said, the assistant had left and he said, I, I want you to come back and coach. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if that's what I want to do, but I also didn't know what I wanted to do in life. And so I ended up deciding that, that Stanford would be a good place to go figure it out. And so I went back and coached with them for a season. We had the youngest team in the history of the final four. We started four freshmen or seven starters. Wow. We were also the tallest team in the history of the final four. I think we were six, 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 three with some hops, six, four and six, eight across wow. the front row. Like just, wow. and we won the national championship that year. And so then he ended up retiring. And then I also ended up retiring from, from college coaching. It was a great, it was a great year and the team was amazing, but I decided that I was right in my initial assessment that I wanted to coach as a side job and not my main career. Yeah. It's a good way to retire your coaching career on a hundred percent national championship. I just figured nobody else is ever going to have that stat. <laughs> I don't that think I they will. Yeah. I, I don't think they will. That's amazing. And so then uh, after your experience in winning championships as a coach, you then transitioned to something a little bit different. And that was that path. Was that what your, your next step then? No, I actually in the middle went completely outside of sports. I wanted to just see what was going on in the world. And so I did a couple of smaller projects and then I ended up getting a job with a woman named Megan Smith who had just come out of the White House. She was the chief technology officer of the United States under President Obama in that administration. And someone just connected us and was like, I don't know exactly what she's doing, but it's probably something innovative that's good for the world. And I was like, I'm in. Sounds good. And it was this crazy job. We had all kinds of different projects all centered around economic opportunity and inclusion. Her theory of the world basically being if we included everybody, we could solve all the problems. There's 7 billion of us. Everything is solved somewhere. And so we worked with everybody from the United Nations to Native America to Hollywood. And one of the things about it, it was a very tumultuous time in our country. This is 2016, 2017. But we were working with all the people who were doing great things in the world, working for more equity. And in the course of that work, I think two things jumped out at me. One was just like, what's the long game? If we can change the policies and everything now, but how are we changing kind of behavior and cultural norms around the ways that we treat each other and the ways that we envision ourselves and our place in the world? And so that's what I started really thinking about is what are, what are the sort of the cultural levers you can press in to change that? And coming where I come from, I thought, okay, well, sports would be a good place to start. Sport has always been a driver of cultural change. And there are just these networks, massive networks of kids who you can reach. And so if we're talking about playing the long game, it's be, it would be great to start in a place that has millions of kids, which is what the sports world reaches. And so I started thinking about, okay, how could we get the messaging out through those networks and really start to develop better skills around things like empathy um, and empowerment. And so that's that was what kind of PATH was born out of. And those are two of the main focuses of PATH, but can you describe what PATH is and how it's set up, what the platform is, and why empathy and empowerment are two of the main principles that, that PATH focuses on? Yeah, we right now essentially create content featuring 
the successful kind of top athletes and coaches of sports who A, kids are more apt to listen to and B, have obviously done something well. And short form content because we know that attention spans are not super long these days. So two to four minute lessons framed by those elite athletes and coaches around their experience and using their voice. And then breaking down those big topics of something like empathy or empowerment into small, tangible chunks. Because I think there's a lot of messaging out there that's don't bully and be confident and be kind, which I think is fantastic. I'm all for it. And I also think kids have no idea what it means in in actual practice. And so what we really want to do is go, okay, can we draw the line for them to their actual lives and then practice these skills in the same way that you practice hitting a ball? Because when a kid walks into a gym, I don't just hand them a ball and say, here, go serve it. Like we break it down to the fundamentals. So why don't we break these kind of human skills down to the fundamentals too? And then at the end of each of these lessons, we give them, okay, here, here are the actual takeaways. What Here are a couple of things you can talk about or think about if you're within your team. And here are a couple of ways that you can practice this in your life right now, like in your training today. And just as importantly, or more importantly, when you go to school tomorrow, when you're with your family, because we also want to be able to translate these things outside of a sports context. And we're pretty good at being good teammates to the person next to us who's wearing the same jersey, but can we be a great teammate to everybody else in the world? Isn't that kind of the ideal culture that we would create? And yeah. so in terms of that, that messaging, it, it really started with me thinking about, okay, what's the world that I want to live in, which is in a more kind of equitable kind place. And then thinking, what are, the, what are the cultural barriers to that? And so when I think about like a lot of the work that I did with Megan and her company, as I think about kids entering the adult space, like their first workplace, and I think about the tech companies that we would talk to and they go, okay, the cultural problems are, A, it's toxic. Like people don't know how to deal with and interact with and value people who are different than them. So how do we create people who understand how to do that? Which I think is sport is just a perfect place for because you have to be on teams with all different kinds of people. And then B, does, does every person who walks into that workplace feel like they belong and, and are empowered to be there? Particularly young women, young people of color, do they see a place for themselves in that space, in leadership positions? So I think it's two sides of the same coin to go, okay, how am I looking at other people and how am I looking at myself? I think it's a great platform and a great approach, especially when you can really cultivate this idea of kids really having a, a natural attraction to sports in a lot of ways and understanding how to use that and leverage that to create a little bit more understanding of how this can be widely used beyond, like you said, your teammates. What's one of your favorite examples of one of those lessons that you can not only explain a little bit better, but some actual items that you currently have on the platform? There's so many that I love. One of them is Jason Collins, who is the first openly gay player in the NBA, just talking about how to think about stereotypes and how other people are, what other people are putting on you. One of his examples is being a a gay player. He had the idea of, okay, that's going to make you soft. And so he was like, okay, I have to be more aggressive because people think of this of me. And so I think some of the discussions and the action items out of that are, can you A, recognize kind of the stereotypes that are being applied to you? And then B, like, what are the ones that you want to own? And what are the ones that you don't like? Because his point in his lesson is, you don't have to fit the thing that they're saying that you are. Taking the time to go, okay, who do I want to be? Does that match up with what I'm being told that I am? And if not, like, how do I become aware of it and, and practice being being what I actually want? That's awesome. How are you guys approaching actually disseminating this platform to kids at, this, at the moment? So I, I didn't want to just build this thing and then, and then have everybody, just assume everybody's going to come to it. 
my whole point from the beginning was these networks exist already. These kids are already occupying these spaces. How do we go to them? And a big part of what we do is try and partner with organizations that are already serving those communities, the, the coaches, the parents, the kids themselves, coaching professional development sites or the places where everybody's going to see who's ranked where and all of that, you know, information and to use those spaces and their, you know, email lists and the newsletters and the content that's already going out and just say, Hey, can we just slot in here? And we're a nonprofit. So people, it's not threatening and it's hard to say no to our message because yeah. then you just be a jerk. So a lot of people have said yes to that. And then just finding again, that network effect and going, okay, what are the biggest points that we can hit? Like networks of athletic directors, for example, who obviously serve a lot of different kids and then looking at both the sort of pay to play areas of sports and the who's serving the underserved areas of sports, because I think different messages within our content hit different audiences. You look at like pay to play networks and like I, those kids could use a lot of empathy. With, with this, as you mentioned, being a long game, what do you envision being some tangible ways that you can see path being effective? Meaning if you're implementing this now, what are the things that you hope to see couple years down the line, five years, 10 years, where Path has had an impact? Five years, 10 years, we want to be able to see quantitatively for any given kid, is it going to have an impact to have the studies done on that? But then also big picture to see within the sports world, are we seeing any kind of cultural shifts? We know that every movie ever made about high school tells me that the jocks are the ones who set the culture, right? So if you change that, you can change a lot of things. So seeing the emphasis, I think, on sports, not go away from winning, but at least be side by side in the, the wooden-esque model of, do these things matter just as much? And are we taking time? Do we not just say that sports teach life skills, but are we taking time, 10 minutes even of our practice to actually talk about what we're doing? And so I think if we can see, and we'll have to figure out how to measure that effectively, but if we can see any kind of shift towards that, I think that's our, our goal. That's great. I think it's a very exciting way to approach that. Very novel, obviously. And I really think that the way in which you're providing that content fits where everybody's at right now and how they're really consuming things, especially at that age. I assume that probably takes up most of your time other than the fact that you recently came out of retirement, right? I did. Yes. I am currently a professional volleyball player again. Well, that's awesome. Tell me about that because that's, like you said, it's based in the United States. That's a relatively new thing. Is that right? Yeah, it's huge for our sport. So we, like I said, have not had professional volleyball for decades. There's an organization called Athletes Unlimited that's really focused on bringing women's sports leagues into fruition. And they started with softball and moved on to volleyball. And it's a really unique um, opportunity because it's their emphasis is being on really player led to have the, and not giving lip service to it, but actually doing it. So there's a five person player executive committee that, that, that I'm on for each sport. And pretty much every decision about the league, you know, comes through us at some point from the location of it. We're in Dallas right now. What does the venue look like? What are the uniforms like? What, who are the officials and the coaches? And so it's, it's a real opportunity to have a voice in what hopefully is a future opportunity for the next generation coming up to something that we can build, but, but they're really innovative in their approach to it's, it was, it's just a five week season, which is part of the reason I could do it and still run path. There are new teams every week. So we redraft our teams. Oh really? That's um, cool. Yeah. And so it's a really interesting new format. And when you get to this point in your career, there's rarely anything that's like very new. We have really high level players from the US, but also from around the world. We have a Brazilian and a Dominican. And, and so it's been fun. So there's an individual kind of point scoring system, similar to a fantasy style thing. And so you score points based on 
how much your team wins and then also on your individual stats and MVP voting. And so at the end, there'll be an individual crown champion and kind of player rankings beyond that. And your bonus comes from how high you're, you're ranked as a player. So it's been, yeah, it's been fascinating to do and like, and very fun and really high level. And just the production quality of it has been far beyond anything we've seen in volleyball, I think ever in the US. That's great. And is this the first year they've done it? This is the first year, yeah. That's awesome. I'm yeah. glad to hear that's popped up and hopefully it keeps some talent here in the United States as opposed to having all our athletes travel abroad to keep playing. Yeah. Everyone, when we say we play overseas, everyone thinks about it like they think about their European vacation and it's not that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a long time to be in another country and not have anyone around who speaks English, but like not have the food you like to eat or and all of the things that we can take for granted. And so there are a lot of people who, given the opportunity, would love to play within the U.S. Yeah. I'm glad that opportunity has started to, has popped up and hopefully it see it grow, um, not only for volleyball, but as you mentioned, for a lot of other sports that are lacking from a professional standpoint here in the United States. Yeah. A few kind of just random miscellaneous questions going forward. If you could think back to your experience going through trying to find a diagnosis with everything you were experiencing, was there ever any point that you harbored any sort of frustration towards the doctors or the medical community for not having an answer for you? I feel like I've more like felt bad because they really wanted to help so badly and kept coming back with nothing. And there was frustration for sure, not aimed at the doctors, but just in not even a frustration, just just like going to the hospital again. It's, it was just depressing. And you're like, I'm sitting in a waiting room. I assume people around me are going in and, and getting treatments and getting diagnoses. And by the way, they're all twice my age, even when I'm in college. And like the point at which the nurse on call knows your name before you sign in, those are the kind of things where you're like, it just doesn't feel like it's getting better and we're getting further away from the answer. So I had to keep telling myself more information is a good thing, but at what point is it not anymore? At what point is just, I'm all you're really telling me now is just that there's nobody else like me is what I'm hearing. But yeah, I never felt that towards the doctors themselves. And they really wanted to. I think the biggest thing for me also was I hadn't seen a doctor in 10 years when I got to Stanford. Once I started walking, once we ran out of treatments when I was a kid, I just stopped because the process of it just took a lot of kind of emotional energy. And I wasn't planning on going back unless there was kind of something certain. And then I went back in college and it's at what point do you just call it and just say, okay, I'm just going to go back and, and live my life. And it ended up being when I graduated, which was a an obvious point to do it because there's it feels like there's always something out there you can try but how do i really want to yeah and i think a lot of times patients come in and they're looking for a diagnosis and vast majority of patients get something and then with that diagnosis have some sort of treatment there's closure to that experience was there at one point where you got to where you didn't feel like you got closure or maybe you never did or maybe once you decided hey we've tried everything there's nothing there that was enough closure for you just to move on was there a point where you had to come to that sort of realization yeah i think that probably i don't think there was full closure but i think when we got to the point where they were like it's going to get invasive like we're going to have to a potentially affect your motor control or whatever you're going to do in the brain it was just i'm not going to do that so if we don't have anything else, and we were already at the end of the spectrum that was that when he was coming in and suggesting things, he was very open. This is probably not going to work. Even the ketamine and all that, we were on the kind of experimental end already. And so when we got to that point and, and we're going to get invasive, I was just like, no, at least not at this point in my life, we're not going to do that. And then I was graduating also. And so it, it felt like 
the most obvious point of closure. It's funny, I was trying to think back when I was a kid, like what was the last thing that we tried? And I can't remember. I just know that once I was walking, I think at some point, the only thing that I was doing was just physical therapy. And we weren't even, you know, trying treatments anymore. And I don't know even, I don't remember if somebody asked me or, or if I was just like, let's just go for it. And if I need to come back, I will. And I ended up not needing help until I got to college and was playing college sports. Again, as I mentioned, that whole process is, is so fascinating, especially at that age, to where you've tried everything, don't have an answer, and you said, forget it, we're just going to move on. I think it's a very mature way and a mature psychology at such a young age to be able to deal with something as recalcitrant and chronic that you were de dealing with. You know what I think about it? I think about it if you imagine if you were going to leave your house and you knew that every day that you left, somebody was waiting outside to beat you up. And if you think, okay, there's reinforcements are coming, then you don't leave the house. Like you wait. And if you are sitting there going, there's nobody coming, I'm on my own, then your options are I'm going to sit in my house for the rest of my life or I'm going to go out and face it. And so I think that was, you know, a little bit of that moment too was going, I have to, and it's, that was a huge, for a kid that age, like a huge mindset shift to, to shatter my own worldview that somebody has the answers and they're going to fix it, which is where all kids are at. And it's a pretty young age to do it, but to just to just allow for the realization that maybe nobody's coming and maybe I just need to do it, which I think was probably one of the reasons I was crying. Like that is a terrifying thought and I was really scared, but ended up going, yeah, I need to go out of the house and face it. And do I get beat up every day? Yeah, sometimes not as much as others, but sometimes pretty bad. <laughs> Wow. But I still get to go out and live my life. Yeah. And I think it's probably, yeah, of all this, that's, even though that sounds so simple, that's probably one of the greatest gains that it appears that you've gained is that just you said, I'm not going to let a normal life escape me because of this. Yeah. And I love my life. And one of the things that I think is important, especially, I guess, for anybody, I think the hope that people have when they're in the middle of these kinds of things is, oh, I want to get to a point where I don't hurt anymore which would be great. And I would take it, obviously. But I feel like there needs to be a shift to, I want to be happy. And hurting and being happy are not mutually exclusive. I can have both of those things at the same time. And that's, you know, when I was talking about gratitude earlier, that's what I was referring to is on my worst day, if you asked me about my life, I'd tell you it's fantastic. A mid breakdown, and I've had them. But there are so many great things that I have that are happening in my life on any given day, I can focus on the one that's really bad or on the hundred things that are going great. And that part of it's up to me. And some days it's a lot harder than others, but overall I can still understand that I'm happy with what I have. Have you ever had a comparison from what you experience on a daily basis to another sort of injury, bad ankle sprain, any sort of ligament damage, anything like that, where you've had to take more time off that's not related to this? I've been pretty lucky and I've had just minor muscle strains and stuff here and there. Almost everything I've been able to play through. So, Sometimes against advice. But. That's fortunate, especially as a collegiate athlete and a uh, collegiate athlete playing something like volleyball where the amount of jumping and pivoting and what you guys have to do is high risk in a lot of ways. That's very fortunate. How do you think, and again, not having undergone one of those, 
how would you compare what you experienced to an acute injury that you see if probably some of your teammates have gone through, whether it's an ACL or bad ankle injury or foot fracture, as you mentioned? How do you think those compare? I think the difficult thing about acute injuries like that is the being away from the sport, which is in some ways my primary medicine is just you know being able to play. The hard thing about what I do, the two hard things about what I do is one, like I said, it's kind of on me. So I'm not going to further injure myself. So it's just, can you take the pain or not? And my choice in college was always, let's push it and see. And got right up to the edge of, can I take this? Maybe like a little bit over the edge at times. But and then the other hard thing is that it's not going to stop. Acute injury, you rehab it and eventually it's going to get better. And maybe you're not ever to 100% of where you were. Um, or maybe you always hurt a little bit while you play volleyball or whatever. But even beyond my volleyball career, I knew that this is still going to be. And it's not when I go to practice that I'm okay when I go back to my dorm room or my apartment. It's just always going to be there, or at least for the foreseeable future. And I think it's a different, It, like I said before, it requires you to not think that far ahead of it. But there is no kind of saving grace at the end. Has your experience on a daily basis when you wake up today, 20 plus years after your initial experience at age nine, has that changed at all? Has it, has the pain changed in terms of its character, quantity, frequency at all? Or is it the same as it was the first time you experienced it? I think it's pretty close to the same. I think when I'm not full-time training on a normal human day, not an athlete day, I think it's probably pretty close to the same, but I've adapted a lot more. So it's probably, you know, affects me less than I, when I couldn't walk, obviously, but I would guess the level is similar on a day in full training. It's significantly more than it was when I was a kid. And so I think that took a lot of kind of steps of adapting. I call it like the pain ladder, like starting as a kid, okay, it hurt a certain amount when I was on crutches and then it hurt a little bit more when I started walking. And then I started playing volleyball and that hurts a little bit more. Then you adjust to it. And then you start playing higher levels and lifting weights and all that and you adjust to that and so i think we're many rungs up the ladder now when i'm in full athlete training mode so that's worse i would assume and as far as anyone in the athletic world dealing with a struggle or an injury where they are kept away from the sport or where they're all having difficulty continuing to play in this experience of yours what pieces of advice would you lend to those dealing with this i mean i think you know the first thing is really understanding what are, what are you doing to your body when you do push it? Because I've, I've given the opposite advice to teammates that I've given to myself, which is, Hey, you're hurt. You need to not make it worse. And if you're going to like, like when my strength coach in college used to tell me, Juan Pablo used to be like, you need to be a responsible athlete first. And so if you're hurting yourself to the point that it's making you a worse athlete, then that's not helping anything. So my goal was always, I wanted to push myself. And so my goal was always to find where that line was. Can I go right up to it to the point where I'm pushing myself to be the best that I can be, but not flipping over to the point where I'm actually hurting my performance? And that's, I think, a little bit of a trial and error to figure out what that line is for people. But that was probably the biggest thing from an athletic standpoint. And then I think genuinely just the the idea of kind of gratitude and perspective is a big one. And then finding what are the things that when you have something like this, I think it's it's different when you have to take time off from the sport. When you have something like this that just it just hurts or anything in life that hurts. It doesn't have to be physical, but what are the things that you love? Whether it's the sport, whether it's books or TV shows or music, what are the things that you love enough that they, they don't make the pain better, but they make it more manageable. And so volleyball has always been that for me and other things have too. And so I think it's about finding that the people that you want to be around, just the, the things that 
again, allow you happiness, whether or not you're hurting. That's great. So obviously path is, is taking up majority of time being a professional athlete still coming out of retirement. Anything else that you have in, in the back of your mind going forward in the future that you've also thought about getting into starting? Anything else that is, is at the back of your mind that you're thinking about going forward? I'm currently on the board of USA Volleyball. So that takes a little bit of time too. And I chair the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. I assume I'm not going to be a professional volleyball player for a whole lot longer. We'll see how long um, if I do this year in and year out, but it's only five weeks of the year. But so within the volleyball world, I want to you know increase access and, and grow the sport to different communities. I think that's an important thing. And then, yeah, I really want to build path up. And then I don't know. I feel like I like this space of cultural change. And so things within that realm, I don't know what they are yet, but I think there were always ideas floating around. And my primary goals are like, I want to work with talented, smart people and I want to do good in the world. I think there are a lot of different ways to do that. And I'm excited about the one that I'm doing right now, but I'm sure that there are more on the horizon. I think it's a great approach. Clearly you've been successful so far, not only in your athletic, but uh, extra athletic endeavors. And you know, I want to thank you so much for your time. This has been very enlightening, learning about something that is really atypical in a lot in terms of what, what we do from a sports medicine standpoint and still realizing that it can really have a major effect uh, on someone growing up. But there is light, there is the ability to persevere. And it's been really interesting and gratifying hearing your story. Any last parting words or pieces of advice you would leave for our listeners here today? I think just control what you can control. And even when it feels like there are a lot of things that are outside of that, there's always something that's not. And I think for me, it always comes from the place of whatever's happening in my world, the one thing that I control is me. And so if I can just walk through the world as who I am, then that's my contribution. That's awesome. I think it's a great way to end. That was probably one of my favorite experiences or, or discussions that you mentioned is that your ability to respond that way. And I think it is so broadly applicable and not just to what you experienced, but in a lot of ways, a lot of what people are going through, whether it's pain, injury, or anything else. And so uh, this has been enlightening. Loved every minute of it yeah. and look forward to seeing how things go with PATH and how things go with your professional career. So good luck with everything. I really appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Nice to meet you guys. You too. Have a good one. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury Podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time, be well and take care. Goodbye. Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. 